You're listening to Recovery, Healing, Outreach, and Awareness, a podcast about domestic violence, sponsored by Randy's House of Angels. Domestic or intimate partner violence is a complex and silent epidemic that affects millions of people worldwide. To respond to the overwhelming issues associated with domestic violence, Randy's House of Angels has produced a series of podcasts beginning in October that will bring this epidemic to the forefront of public consciousness and break the silence that often shrouds it. I'm Paul Miller, the producer of this program, and we invite you to access the podcasts by going to randyshouseofangels.org. Today's topic will be the impact of domestic violence regarding age, long-term relationships, and mother, father, sibling, and future intimate partners. Today, we would like to introduce you to William Kilbrew IV. William Kilbrew IV is a global advocate for civil, human, women, children, and victims' rights. He is a sought-after speaker on trauma-informed care, violence prevention, and strategic planning. At age 10, William witnessed the murder of his mother, Jacqueline, and 12-year-old brother, Tony, in their living room in 1984 by his mother's ex-boyfriend. The killer took his own life that day, but not before making William beg for his life at gunpoint. In this podcast, William shares his personal and professional journey of healing and resiliency. From experiencing multiple childhood traumas, including domestic violence and childhood trauma, William has emerged as a global advocate and authority on addressing violence and trauma throughout multiple systems and settings. In 2015, Killebrew was nominated by the U.S. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton to receive the U.S. Congressional Victims' Rights Caucus Unsung Hero Award for exemplifying and embodying the movement for victim rights through outstanding efforts in victim advocacy, allied professional advocacy, public policy, and public awareness. Today's podcast facilitator is Sherry Peters, a master's level social worker who is a nationally recognized facilitator in the children's mental health field. Formerly the director of the Psychiatric Residential Treatment Facility Waiver Initiative at Georgetown University's National Technical Assistance Center for Children's Mental Health, Ms. Peters also spent 21 years in the Pennsylvania State Office of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, working on children's mental health policy and program development after working as a therapist in residential and community settings. William, we're so glad to have you with us today, and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about you and your childhood. We'll get to your healing and uh, the hope and healing part in a little while. I thought we could start with just your experience as a child. Well, I grew up in Washington, D.C., born and raised, and my mom had five kids, so I'm one of five four boys, one girl. So she had it tough. I, my sister, uh, Nikki had to be, uh, she was a, what you call quote unquote, a tomboy. So she was always doing what we did and it, it was great. And so I, I grew up in, in Washington, DC and, uh, in and around Maryland, um, at that particular time. And I think growing up for me was really exciting. Growing up was exciting in, 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 in the seventies and in eighties, it was just a lot of fun. We had so much, uh, we were kids. We had a really, really great time being kids, but there was just so much, you know, going on 
beyond childhood that that I got to experience. It 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 was just you know really great growing up with all my brothers and sisters, but but there were real huge challenges growing up as a kid, um, especially especially in those times. Thanks, William. So tell us a little bit about the trauma side of what you experienced as a child. And I was honored to read the book that you just wrote. So I know a little bit about what you shared in your book, but just tell us briefly what you experienced and we'll get to how you resolved some of those things and are resolving throughout your life. Well, uh, in terms of um, experiencing trauma, I experienced multiple traumas. Uh, we call it complex trauma. And one of the things I experienced very, very, very early on at age six was that I was sexually uh, abused by um, my mom's neighbor and friend, someone who had gotten our trust and and broke that with my mom. And it was it was it was devastating um, to 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 go through through that as a as a six year old. Um, I had really no clue what I was experiencing. And, and that, and that, that was just a, 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 a huge new thing that happened to me. And I kept it secret for, for, for many years. Um, and so I didn't get a really a, a chance to really talk about that as a child under, under, under 14 years old. And it was only until later on that I, that I, that I revealed it, but not only did I experience that, but at the age of, of 10, I witnessed the, the killings of my, my mother and uh, my 12-year-old my brother in our family living room. And not only did I experience watching that, but I was also held at gunpoint, made to beg for my own life that morning. And so I, those things coupled was really a recipe for for what what I what I thought as a kid I, I would never survive I would never get through those things and um, so it 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 hugely impacted the way that I saw the world and what this world was capable of all in all again not having one clue about what that meant for my life for my family but it was it was quite devastating. What changed to help you know that there was hope in the world? Well, you know, um, for for me, it it had to go probably negative negatively before I could make any turn, you know, make any huge turns and turn into a positive direction. Um, I had awakened. Well, well, I'll, I'll say this: after the murders, we went back to school. We went back to our, uh, we went back to a, a, you know, a different neighborhood. We moved, um, different school, different everything. I had to, we had to leave life behind, the lives that we had behind, all of my friends. And you know, we didn't have Facebook back then, or YouTube, or any of those things back then. And so, it was difficult to pick up and leave and leave every single thing. And as children, for me, we we didn't have a choice, my brothers and sisters, on whether we would go back and forth. We 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 left. My grandmother moved moved us to a different um, into back into Washington D.C. from Maryland, where we were living. 
And for me at 10 years old, that's a big world away, right? I don't have a car. I can't drive back over and see my friends. I didn't have a lot of control over that. And it was very difficult to go back to the neighborhood. My grandmother didn't want to go back. No one wanted to go back. It was like we had to forget about it. In fact, a family member had told me, you're just going to have to forget about it. And that's really what I did, Jerry. I, I, I went back to school and in the fifth grade, and that was my focus to try and forget about it. Um, so I, 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 I was daydreaming, um, you know, looking off into the, the clouds many, many days, getting in trouble for looking off into the clouds, you know, but, you know, I was surviving those days. But three years after the, the murders, I woke up one day and I said to myself, um, and I had a plan going to sleep, but I, I woke up and I was committed to this plan that I wanted to take William out of this equation. I did not want to live anymore. And so I, I went to our neighborhood bridge that morning and stood on the bridge and, you know, seconds before I jumped, I debated two things, whether I was going to go to heaven or hell or whether I was going to see my mother and brother again. And the first question about heaven or hell, I was 12 to 13 years old. And so I, I didn't know the answer to that question. So I'm, I'm glad it stumped me right there on the, on the bridge. And the second thing was whether I'd ever see my mother and brother again. And I didn't know that. I didn't know what the answer was going to be. And so I said, I'm going to, I'm going to leave here and, and, and come back at three. And I'll just have the courage to do that later. And so that was a huge turning point for me. And my assistant principal at my school, junior high school, Mr. Charles C. Christian, always speak his name because that's such a powerful name. And Mr. Christian saw something in me that morning and he, and he phoned my grandmother and told her what was going on with me. He didn't know what my plan was, but he knew that something was going on that was very different than he had ever seen uh, in me. It was this person who was lost to him. Didn't, I, I, I think he looked at me later on, he would describe me, um, it's described as, 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 as a really lost and was in this really strange place. And so he, he knew what to do. And so I'm glad he acted because when he called my grandmother, um, they got me into a counseling, uh, or they got me into, um, a children's hospital for my first assessment. And that's where I was. Uh, they decided to hospitalize me for, for 30 days. Back then there were long stays in hospitals. So 30 days. Then. Yeah. But fortunately that school person really knew how to recognize that you were going through something really, really hard and was able to refer you to what you needed at the point, at that point. So say more about the people in your life that this is one of them who intervened early, got you your first assessment. Um, he had called your grandma uh, and I understand from the book that she was a really, really important person in your life and in supporting you. So talk a little bit about those people in your life that have made a difference. My grandmother was, was a, is an amazing woman. She's, she's still alive and she is just, just amazing. She, her spirit, her love for family and that value that she had really stuck with her. And she was even asked once 
she told us by her supervisor many, many years ago when, it, when, when the murders occurred, she was asked if she was going to keep the children. And she was quite offended with that question. Keep the children. These children are my children. These are my daughter's children. They're, they're, that's not a question for me. And so she was very offended by that. And I think that that did a lot to her at work. Even though I think she had some support at work, it was it was very difficult to think that she would then separate. I think it, she re-experienced trauma with that, to even that question whether she would keep her grandchildren, that that's all she knew. That's what she was going to do. And so she jumped right in that day. You know, she was traumatized herself. She had just experienced the death of uh, the killings of not only her um, only daughter, uh, she had three bo- three boys, but this was her only daughter. And then another grandson experienced that. And then our, my, bro- my brothers and sister who, who weren't in the house experienced from a different perspective. Uh, but my, my grandmother had all of these things to contend with. She had the funeral to contend with. Uh, she had to pay for the funeral. She even attempted to get some support from the government. And the government at that time um, did not support her, she said. So she was really in a box with her, you know, her and my um, grandmother, who she wasn't in a relationship with, but she uh, but was my mom's dad. So they really struggled. They really struggled after that. I mean, my grandmother went to work less than two weeks after the murders and she knew her mission. She knew what she had to do. And so she stepped in and she had been rolling ever since. And 38 years on her job, she never used an alarm clock. Um, She was late less than 10 times on her job. Uh, I remember (laughs) the ceremony of the retirement. They, They talked about how she was really always on time. And my grandmother always talked about how she left this one lady who was doing carpooling because the lady showed up late. She said, well, you're late. I'm got to, got to go. So my grandmother is so serious. Uh, she is, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that she became a bit obsessed, obsessive compulsive, right? Obsessed with work, obsessed with making sure that we had food on our, on our, on our plates, made sure that we had a shelter over our heads. And I asked her, Sherry, later on in life, a big question for me, I was wanted to know, it's probably a question you, you'd ask me. And I said, well, what kept you going? What, what, what was your thing? How did you survive all of these years? And she said to me, you know, it was you all, it was the kids. That's what kept her going. She said, because I wouldn't have been here. I, I would have given up. She said, but I had I had these kids to think about and to worry about. So I had to go to work. Randy's House of Angels is here with an incredible annual event that makes a world of difference. Join us as we rally for a cause and create lasting impact through Randy's Race, a 5K run and walk for hope and courage. Mark your calendars for the 20th annual Randy's Race, honoring the spirit of 28-year-old Randy Lee Trimble on Saturday, May 11, 2024, at 9 a.m. at Adams Ricky Park in Enola. Rain or shine, we stand united for hope and courage. Since its inception in 2005, Randy's race has grown each year, raising an awe-inspiring $629,000 and counting. We'll see you there.
And you know, she wasn't making much money back then and raising a second generation. And so she was, a, she is and, and was, as, as we grew up, a very, very special person. Albeit she was very traumatized because she did a lot of yelling. <laughs> she did a lot of yelling and a lot of discipline, but she was, she was absolutely um, amazing in doing that. So I will ask you then, uh, what did keep you going? There was some, some inkling of hope. Um, the, the day I, I wanted to jump off of that bridge and Mr. Christian getting me to that assessment, getting into the hospital, when I was discharged, I was transferred or, or, uh, or referred back over to um, Children's Hospital for therapy. And my, um, this was my first ever therapist. I really didn't know what therapy was all about. But my first ever therapist, Christine Pierre, she, she started off in the cafeteria. And our first session, she started in the office. And then we worked our way down to the cafeteria. And we, uh, you know, she, she, she asked me with her hands open wide, you know, what do you, what do you want to eat? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we're displaced. We are staying with extended family. It's 14 of us living in this house. Here she's telling me, you know, what do you want to eat? And I'm, I'm 13 years old. And I'm like, in my head, I'm saying to myself that I'm going to clean these, this lady's pockets out. She's gonna, I, I'm gonna get in this cafeteria and do some damage. Um, but what I saw was interesting. I went to the cat, the, the, um, the ice cream machine, and I, I built the biggest ice cream cone you could build on this side of earth. And I remember just licking that ice cream, ice cream and like any kid would and enjoying that. And I, I gather, you know, now looking back, she was building an interesting relationship with me. She was listening to me, but Sherry, the, the difference was that this was the first time that someone actually proactively wanted to listen. There were people were so afraid to talk to me. My sisters and brothers, they didn't want to hear what happened in the house. My grandmother could not say one or two sentences about my mom without crying. So it was a taboo subject for our home. And so it was very difficult to hold those things in from every adult and not be able to communicate about those things. And it wasn't until Christine Pierre did I find that someone actually wanted to hear what I, little Will, had to say. And so the therapy sessions did not last long, long, but to the point to your question, it was it was this spark, this start of what hope could actually look like. I didn't have the words back then. Trust me, I did not know the words probably. I didn't know about hope or resilience or whatever that that was back then. I knew that I committed to myself, I'll get up another day. I'll get up another second. I'll, I'll keep going. Um, I was battling depression. I, I would just keep going one one step at a time, one breath at a time I would take to get through. And and those and that that was collective, you know. It, it, I started to collect that and I started to actually really appreciate therapy because it was one place I could go where I could talk to somebody and I wouldn't have to worry about what I said people would be scared of. Yeah. And I remember reading in your book that that experience, that relationship actually influenced you somewhat in some of the future choices you've made uh, for your career or multiple careers. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it really influenced me. Now, first of all, uh, I, I I didn't know about victim services. I I I, uh, I worked in the restaurant business from 19 years old, around 18, 19 years old, years old to 27. So about nine years in the restaurant business. And I will tell you, I was traumatized in the restaurant business. I mean, well, often by the customers sometimes, but <laughs> there were some interesting experiences. But what I what I'm talking about is that. I was still working on Will, William. I was still working on me's, particularly on the inside. And I was still avoiding things like my mom's birthday. I was still avoiding my own birthday that I had um, committed to not celebrating anymore um, at an early age. Um, I was starting to get into the workforce. And <clears throat> I realize now, you know, that many people who are in whatever workforce they're in, some some of them actually have uh, unaddressed trauma, unaddressed unaddressed um, pain and hurt, and that was me. And I, I looking back, that was me. I was going to work feeling really bad and trying to mask that through through the restaurant business. I started as a host, and so imagine me being your first impression. I was the happiest person going right because I was working so hard to 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 to, to cover everything up. That, that I was the happiest person. And I had told myself that if someone asks you how you're doing, my answer is gonna be fantastic. And so even though I was masking all of this pain, I had found a way to at least look like I was happy, at least to try to mimic what I wanted happiness to look like. And so working in the restaurant business gave me that I get to I got to be it got to be like a show, if you will, a whole new William. And I got to put that on display. And so I would cry at work and, you know, in, in private. And my grandmother actually told me once um, that she often cried in um, privacy when she went on breaks. She she went to the locker room and she would have a moment to cry. And that's not knowing that very early on, that's what I was really doing. I was going into the uh, walk-in fridge, right? Where we have all of the food or where we have the um, food for, for, for the restaurant or, or alcohol room, or I was, I was going in there and, um, and taking a moment during the daytime because it was very difficult sometimes to get through the day, even at 19 years old or 20 years old. And so, um, when I went back to school at 27 years old, it took three tries, but I got back, I got into college and I started to volunteer. And that's, I think what transformed me was giving of myself. I, I wasn't there yet in terms of, in terms of understanding what was happening inside of me. I had buried and suppressed that for many years. So volunteerism is the way I expressed my empathy and expressed my love for humanity and i i told my story one day at this um at this uh, this this event that was held at this church and a woman named joy frost saw me speak only had five minutes to speak and she saw me speak and and that's when she said you know can you get in touch with me and from that day forward she was the one who got me involved in victim services because she was the director for the office for victims of crime for the u.s department of justice an appointed position. So she was an acting director, I think, at the time. Uh, but what was significant was that um, in the next year that I'm, the year after I met her, 
I was at the um, the National um, Observance Candlelight Observance for Victims of Crime. What's significant about this is that I didn't know that all of this this office was established by the by the VOCA Act back in 1984, the Victims of Crime Act, and now that's something else. In 1984, this act was established, and it was the same year that my mother and brother were killed, and I was in that room. And that act afforded victims rights, but those rights were hardly enforced for victims in 1984. We just they just established it, and so it also established that there would there would be compensation, so restitution from offenders that would support a crime victim fund that would be held in Congress and distributed by the um, Office of Victims of Crime. And I remember thinking back to my grandmother that if these things were afforded by that act, she didn't get any support back then. And so I became a huge advocate. I became a huge victim advocate. And Joy Frost, Director Frost, got me into the National Victims Assistance Academy. She got me into the National, to the DC Victims Assistance Academy. And I was training, I was learning on how I could make a difference in the field. And that's really where I started as a victim advocate. And you have done lots of victim advocacy, as I read in your book, and as I know you as a person. So talk some more about what kinds of things you are most excited about in terms of your advocacy work or the the work that you now do and how that connects back to your early experiences. Thanks to Joy. Um, She has such so much credit for for um, for seeing in me what the possibilities were for making a difference. And I was I learned how to speak very early on. And I was a spelling bee champ, third place, by the way, <laughs> when I was in the sixth grade. So I was used to speaking. I'd learned how to um, learn how to speak uh, in, in uh, on stage, and I'd learned how to perform as a as a as a as a kid. So I was not scared of the stage um, or getting out in front of people. And so I think that having that my mom instilled that in me at a very very early age really helped because i had no idea what i was being um, prepared for i i focus on victim services i focus on mental health and this was far from what i was thinking about i wanted to be an entertainer when i was a kid a go to school and be a doctor this was something that was way off for me but it was um one day um, my god sister Tiffany and I, I talk about this in the book too. One day, my god sister Tiffany was um, murdered. She was stabbed uh, multiple times, up to fifty times. The papers said, um, and she, she. I remember her being in the middle of a, a really horrific relationship. Much of the things that my many of the things that my mom went through in that. Uh, while we were um, living with this this her ex, you know her ex boyfriend who, who killed her, she was in a tumultuous relationship, and I remember feeling a bit helpless and not doing anything about it, not supporting her, not calling to find out everything's okay, or um, I, I just didn't think that it was. I didn't know it was just it was that it was that bad, and again, I I didn't really know the 
about domestic violence or, you know, intimate partner violence. I didn't have those words. I was just beginning to learn a lot. But she was killed and it did something to me and, and for me. And so we started this um, sleep out called the um, um, sleep out for peace. And we slept out in front of the mayor's office, in front of the courts, in front of uh, different municipal buildings and federal buildings to bring attention to this, um, this horrific situation, but to also be proactive and call out Pete, call out violence in a way that we could focus on it in a positive way, right? So it wasn't to sleep out against violence because I was tired of fighting against anything. You know, in fact, violence, the definition for violence is the use of force. So why am I forcing anybody to stop anything? That's not how I wanted to do it. I wanted to model what peace looked like, what happiness looked like. So that could be the guiding light and that could be the principle and that could be the value. And see, we had to sleep out for peace instead of the, uh, the first name, which was to sleep out against violence. So we changed that up and we, we called it the sleep out for peace. And we had a good run of it, seven, eight years out there. Uh, Congressman John Lewis stopped by, who's a, who was a um, fraternity brother of mine, but I, I um, uh, and he was uh, just a really great mentor, but he just said some really great things, just very present, you know, in, in, in what he did. And so he surprised me one night, but one of my friends, Jacob Gillison, brought uh, Congressman Lewis down. I was so surprised when he got out of the car because it was a surprise to me. Colin Goddard, who was, thank, thanks, thanks to Colin, Colin showed up as well from, uh, he was a victim of uh, the Virginia Tech shootings. He was shot uh, multiple times in that um, classroom. And we all showed up, Melanie Campbell with the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, and of course, Joy Frost stopped by. And so we had some really pretty big people show up, but we also had people who were in it to, who heard about us on the radio, who came down to support us. And so we, we sleep, almost got arrested once, police showed up, all my friends, I, I they said, you're gonna have to leave or get arrested. And I turned around and said, well, you're gonna have to arrest me because I'm not leaving anywhere. And I turned around and all, everybody got up. Uh, my friend, Tommy Slack from, from Scotland, he came in from Scotland and we just turned around and put our hands behind our back. And, 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 and surprisingly, who walks out the door? A council member named Kwame Brown, walked out of the door and said, what's going on here? And we told him what was happening. And he told the cops, you know, the police officers, and this is what we want. Why, why would you do that? Uh, so uh, he, he stopped that from happening and stopped us from, from getting put out. So it was, it was tough to keep going um, under rainy conditions, cold weather, because the sleep outs were in December, by the way. So we really had to be focused and energetic and excited about what we were doing. But that right there, that sleep out gave me personally an opportunity to um, sacrifice my time, um, my energy. Um, I could be doing anything. I could be at the next club or when I was younger, I could be here and there, but here I was sleeping out and planning a sleep out for peace to bring some attention to the violence that we were experiencing, particularly in DC. So you've had quite an impressive uh, time with all of the advocacy and all of the things you've tried to do to promote hope and healing. And I wonder in closing, if you have any kind of advice or words of wisdom for those who might have experienced the impact of violence as a child or 
I'm assuming mostly adults will be listening to this podcast, but it's possible that even children might be listening a little bit. Are there any words that you would say to them? Wow, that's a really great question. And my brain is all over the place with what I could say. I think I'm going to, I've been asked often, you know, what would I tell a little William, right? And what would I also tell my a grandmother, like my grandmother? You know, she, I'll start with my grandmother. What would I tell someone who had experienced trauma, such as my grandmother, who might, during her time, was holding everything in? And I, one of the best things that I think happened along our way were the people in our lives who were with us along the way, who did not shy away from a call to us and who, like my other grandmother, Rose, when I saw her, I remember she used to always put $100 in my hand. I mean, I was I, had, I was like 12 years old. <laughs> $100 was a lot of money. But, but, it, but it gave me something to hold on to, some support. And of course, I would share with my little brother and sister. Those individuals who would support us and be there uh, was was monumental for us because you didn't really have to say much. My my grandmother wouldn't talk about my my mother much anyway, so you weren't going to get much out of her on that. But what you could get out of her was a good laugh, and she was very humorous, and she was working hard to keep the kids going. And so you know, I I, I thank you know her sister for for allowing us to stay with them because we didn't really have a place to go that would house all of us. You know, we lost everything. We had to move. So all of the family members that supported us along the way, so many, it's very hard. We have a big family. So it's very hard to name all of them. But my my uncles um, who who jumped in and, and we really became a closer-knit family. And even through all of the trauma, you know, work together. And my sister has just been uh, we call her, her name is Monika, but we call her Nikki. My sister has been a force. Um, she became a real spiritual force for the family and real centered us, which my grandmother is and, will, and, and, and has and have been over the years. But my, my sister took that on and she really became the deaconess of the family. So she's held us really tightly in prayer. And, and, and also, you know, I, I am a, a big on my own faith, you know, so I think that spiritually, I have been able to um, get through because I, you know, believe there's a higher power than, than just myself. That is something big out there. And, you know, that was a confusing part of growing up with trauma, because I was very upset with God. I didn't know how to, you know, talk to God or what that was, but it was very difficult to do that. So I think that the, my faith has been huge a huge uh, a component of my of my recovery and um, and all of the individuals that that really supported me along the way. Thank you, William. We're going to uh, need to close for today, uh, but thank you so much for all of the things that you've shared. I think our listeners will really appreciate hearing how you have really used the uh, the resources that you've had for hope and uh, the the word resilience you've mentioned a couple of times so thank you so much thank you 
Randy's House of Angels is sponsoring a series of podcasts that will serve as a resource to anyone impacted by domestic violence, including parents, guardians, caseworkers, health providers, advocates, teachers, trauma specialists, clinicians, and more, to provide an overview of domestic violence and how to handle situations where domestic violence is present. This is a series of 10 podcasts that will include an overview in healthy relationships, the different types of abuse, supporting someone who is engaged in an unhealthy relationship, and criminal justice resources available to victims. It will also include testimony and stories from courageous survivors who are victims of domestic violence. The podcast will be released starting in October of 2023 and run through February of 2024. If you miss a podcast, it will be made available on demand on Randy's House of Angels website at randyshouseofangels.org. After you've listened to our podcast, we would love to hear from you. Your feedback is crucial for the future of our podcast programs. There is a survey available on our website at randyshouseofangels.org. You can also reference the resources that support the podcast on the website, again, at randyshouseofangels.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.